Wow. Well, thank you, Rich, for that uh, meditation on Christmas. Sweet time of year. A lot of rich truths. I, I get the privilege of singing all those Christmas songs and practicing them during the week, and uh, the truths are staggering for sure. Heaven can't give any more than uh, what it gave when it gave us Christ. So, sweet. Well, as you know, we've been in this study on the fear of man. We're in week number three. Um, in our lesson here, I can get my iPad working. And um, I'm, I have a handout tonight, and I'll explain why, because it's, it's going to be a lot of info. But uh, did you guys all get one of those first? Just want to make sure. All right. Where did the stack end up? Are there leftovers? How many leftovers are there? Like one, two? Wow. Whoa. That has never happened. Okay. That's cool. All right. So you guys know where we've been. Uh, our first week that we started this study, um, we just began to unpack the fear of man. What is the fear of man? And uh, you could, we could call that study what it, you know, understanding the fear of man or something like that. So we looked at at the outset, just what it actually is. And the core concept, remember, review, the core concept is not just being afraid of someone, but of actually being controlled or mastered by other people. You guys remember that? All right? It involves worshiping other people when people take the place of God. Uh, It involves needing others in this sort of codependent way, trusting in others, And if we just want to put it really simply, it's when we replace God with people. And that's the idea in the Bible, when the Bible talks about fearing man, or the fear of man. And we also looked at uh, several ways that the fear of man shows up in our lives. So you might say, okay, well, how do do I know that if I struggle with the fear of man? Well, it shows up in, in a lot of practical ways. So when we're easily influenced by others in the wrong directions, that's the fear of man. When we struggle to say no to things, and we become overcommitted, and we, we, we have a hard time reining it in, that's likely the fear of man that's, that's motivating an inability to say no. When we fear being exposed by sin, that's the fear of man operating. When we're obsessed with how we're perceived by other people, the fear of man is happening in that moment. When we struggle to confront other people, typically the fear of man is operative there. When we're tempted to pretend at church, when we, when we crave the praises of other people, that's all this undercurrent of this idolatry the Bible describes as the fear of man. So, that was week one, and we kind of were on the hook there. We learned about some dangers of the fear of man, and we were all indicted in various ways. And then last week, we kind of pivoted and looked at uh, what we were calling the antidote to the fear of man. So what's the answer? If we were, you know... Indicted last week, what's the, what's, the, what's the remedy? And we said it is the what? The fear of God. The fear of God is the remedy to the fear of man. And do you remember the title of the book that I said is just going to be a helpful thing for you to remember? Um, by Ed Welch. What's the title of that book? Just yell it out. When people are big and God is small, right? So why is that significant? Why is that helpful? What does that tell us?
Yeah, that's exactly right. We have an inflated view of people, which is not in accordance with reality. And we have a deflated view of God, which is also not in accordance with reality. And so we worship the creature rather than the creator, if we want to put it in Paul's terms in Romans 1. So that title is just a, a pithy way, helpful way to kind of see the relationship between the fear of man and the fear of God. So when people are big, God is small, and the reverse is true. When God is big, people are in the right place. And we fear others when we fail to fear God and see Him in His resplendent glory that He has in and of Himself. And in that lesson last week, we looked at what it actually means to fear God. So we sort of defined it and then gave some characteristics of the fear of God. And the short answer, do you remember? The fear of God means to... What? God says something, and then you yell it out. Obey it, okay. It's the attitude. It's an attitude. The fear of God is an attitude, all right? So you can, I just want you to get this, all right? So it's easy. It comes to you easy. Fear of God is an attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. It's the attitude of the heart that takes Him seriously. So don't want you to, when you, when you hear fear of God, I don't want you to be like hazy about that, okay? It's the central concept in the Bible. And it's key to everything else. So the fear of God is an attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. And we could, we could flesh that out a bit, saying it's, it's rattled by His warnings. It depends on His promises wholesale. It obeys His commands. Right? It's the attitude of the heart that leads to those things. It's rattled by His warnings. It, it depends on His promises. It obeys His commands. And we said it's, it's an attitude of humble faith. I mean, that's another way of, of putting it. But the short definition is, is it's an attitude of the heart that takes God seriously. And it's, it's vital uh, to the Christian life. We were looking at some initial ways that we can cultivate the fear of God. Um, the Bible's pretty clear. Uh, the, big, the big overarching way is read your Bible. Uh, that's the idea. Put yourself under the Scriptures because the Scriptures are going to reveal to you God in His glory and who He is, believing it by faith, that's going to create the fear of God in your heart. So, we looked at that and, and we, we kind of got a picture, a thumbnail sketch. There's so much we could say about the fear of God. It's such a comprehensive topic. But where I wanted to go tonight is, a, is kind of an extension maybe of last week. You can think of it that way. I've spoken with a number of you uh, who are telling me that you've been really convicted over this material. Like, it's just been very penetrating, very exposing, and you're kind of wondering, like, what do I do with this? So, and that's a really good thing, okay? So I don't want you to be discouraged by that. That's a, sort of the necessary first step is, uh, is if, you, if this teaching, kind of teaching, is new to you. And if we let the Lord work in us, this conviction is going to lead to growth, which leads to joy, ultimately, because we're more useful to Him. Uh, our vision of the Lord is clearer. But what I want to do tonight is just take some time and, and sort of slow down conceptually and, and think through with you guys how the Lord would want us to respond to being convicted in this area. Does that make sense? So what does the Lord want of us? What, what would He desire of us? How does He want us to battle this temptation of the fear of man now that we've been exposed? And that's what tonight's all about. And I'm just calling this third lesson, Battling the Fear of Man, as you can see in your outline. 
And what we're going to do is, is we're going to look at six biblical helps in battling the fear of man. So just ways that the Scriptures help us, what the, what the Scriptures say to us um, on this topic of actually doing battle with the fear of man in our hearts. So when your conscience is inflamed, the Lord's moved in and unearthed some serious fear of man in your heart, and you're under conviction in a particular area like this, what do you do? Well, the biblical authors give us a lot of data on this. They tell us what to do. They don't leave us kind of hanging out to dry. But initially, there's, they, they say kind of two things, okay? They tell us what not to do with our sin, and they tell us what to do with our sin. Okay? So sort of a negative and a positive. What not to do and what to do. And just listen to these passages. I think they're, they're uh, listed at least in the reference form on your outline. Proverbs 28.13 says this, and, and listen for the negative and positive, okay? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 32, 3-5. This is David's describing uh, what happened to him whenever he uh, had sinned and was withholding that. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, 1 John 1, verse 80, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So, do you hear the negative and the positive? What's, what are we told not to do? What's the negative in, in that, just that list that I, that I read to you? Yeah, don't, don't, don't hide your sin. Don't conceal it. Don't cover it. There's a number of words that were used there. Don't say you don't have sin, right? So kind of under the banner of, of, of hiding or concealing. Yep, so there's the negative. And then what's the positive? Easy answer. Just yell it out. Okay, expose. Biblical wording. Confess your sin, right? So that's, that's point one and two of our, of our outline. Um, we're told... Not to conceal our transgressions, not to keep silent about them, not to cover our iniquity, not to pretend that we don't have sin, and the positive side, confess our sin. Acknowledge our sin to God and, and other people that are, that's necessary. Okay? So, number one, our first biblical help in, in this case is don't conceal your sinful fear of man. Don't do that. Don't conceal it. Clear directives from Scripture here. Don't say that you don't have it if you do. Okay? Like John says, don't conceal your transgression here. Now, this is sort of the blocking and tackling of the Christian life. If you're a sports guy, that just means it's the basics of the Christian life. Um, but these are so important because we go off track so quickly in these areas. Okay, 
So don't conceal your sinful fear of man. You and I have got to realize that we are powerfully tempted to conceal our sin. You know what I'm talking about? What might this look like in our lives? How might we be tempted to conceal or cover our transgressions in this area? Well, I've, I've listed a couple blanks in your outline. First, by ignoring it. Just pretending like it's not there. Pretending like you don't have the fear of man when you actually really do have it. It's tempting in these fear of man situations to just straight up ignore the sinfulness of the fear of man. Like just head in the sand, acting like it's not even there. In my life, sometimes it it takes me a while to realize that I'm actually fearing man in a particular area. And And it takes me a while, I think, because if I'm honest, I've been ignoring the warning signs... Um, of that of that area. So as I, as I go before the Lord, I may even pray about a particular situation. Maybe I'm anxious about the situation or whatever it is. But I never actually acknowledge that I'm in sin. That I'm actually idolizing what people think of me and craving that above the Lord. That I sinfully care more about what people think of me than what the Lord thinks of me. So that, that's a way of, of covering sin. Uh, by just ignoring it, pretending it's not there. But here's the reality. If we're fearing man in our hearts, and we're living for men and not the Lord, but we refuse to admit it, that's a form of covering our sin, like, like John and the Proverbs and other things would say. And there's no freedom in that. So I think that's, that even though the exposure is hard and difficult, that's the path of freedom for you, um, to actually this path of confession. But it's not going to happen if you ignore it. And again, that's one of the ways that we conceal our sin. Another way we do it is by minimizing our sin. By minimizing our sin. And so in that, in that case, you acknowledge there's a problem, but then you minimize the sinfulness of the problem. So the difference from the first one is that, you know, the ostrich has put its head in the sand. That's the ignoring piece. But this one is essentially saying, yeah, this is problematic. Like, I see the problems. But is it really sin? So let's just take a hypothetical scenario, which I know none of you struggle with, confronting your friends. Come on, I know we all, you can laugh. I know we all struggle with that. It's difficult, okay? You know you've re- you really need to say this, this scenario is happening, it's clear, it's very obvious, you know you have to do this. They're on a really bad path, collision course, you know, with destruction, and you're wrestling around, and you, you say something like, ah, I'm just not one of those people who, who likes conflict. It's just, conflict is just really hard for me. I just, I'm not the kind of person that, that likes to do conflict. Okay? What does that imply? Your temperament, okay? Your temperament, i.e. the way God made you, is the real reason why you can't be obedient. See what I'm saying? You're essentially saying, oh, I'm not that way. I'm not confrontational. Therefore, I'm not going to confront. So you're saying there's a temperamental issue with you, and it's, that's ultimately traced back to the way God made you. So that's the real reason, in your mind, why you're not doing this. Notice what you're not saying. You're not saying, wow, I'm unwilling to confront my friend because I'm idolizing them right now. Right? 
I'm unwilling to confront my friend because I am sinfully fearing their response more than I fear the Lord. That would be more accurate than saying, oh, it's just not, how, it's not who I am, right? Instead, you're trying to minimize the sinfulness of your response by saying, I don't like conflict. I mean, who does? I mean, I don't think anybody does, unless you're weird, Okay? But according to Scripture, this is a, I just, you got to see this, okay? This is a form of covering our sin. And here's the reality, beloved. We're going to miss all of God's blessings on the other side of this if we keep concealing. All right? So the blessings are awaiting us on the other side of this. The blessings of humility um, if we take God's path. But this isn't God's path. All right? Another way we do it is by blame shifting. Okay? Blame shifting. That's your, that's your next point on your outline. Blame shifting. This is pretty self-explanatory. But when the Lord exposes fear of man, or for that matter, any other sin in your life, and you immediately seek to place the blame somewhere else other than yourself, that's blame shifting. So you feel the exposure, you feel the conviction, and then you want to get that off you as quick as possible and divert it somewhere else. That's the problem. You know, the, the problem's over here. The reason I did this is because them, right? Um, if someone else confronts you and you're quick to point out the sin in their life as a reason for not being exposed yourself, that's, that's blame shifting. And that's a form of covering your sin. <clears throat> a, a really common way we do this is by relabeling our sin with some other unbiblical label. So, for instance, it's like saying we have a self-esteem deficiency. Okay? I just lack self-esteem instead of I actually fear man. So, it, what does that do? Okay, that implies, hang with me, that our core problem isn't actually sinful self-worship but it's something or someone outside of ourselves. <clears throat> okay? So with the self-esteem language, let's just think this through. So if I'm saying I'm struggling with self-esteem and I need, I need esteem from you, and that's why I'm in sin, because I don't have something you're supposed to give me, who's at fault? Well, in that case, you are. Right? You're the problem, not me. I'm, I'm the victim in this scenario. So you all out there haven't esteemed me enough and that's why I'm struggling. So yeah, it shifts the blame, doesn't it? That puts blame on other people when the Bible's saying, no, if you're going to be honest, it's, it's on you. Because you fear man. You're idolizing men. You care a lot about yourself in this moment. So, those are some initial ways. There's a fourth way that we cover our sinful fear of man, but it's a little different than the first couple. Um, I think this is on your sheet. Is there a fourth one? Okay, perfect. Um, I just would call this by, we, we cover our sin by self-atoning, or by trying to atone for it, ourselves. By self-atoning. So, what do I mean by that? Well, you think atonement. Atonement is a, <clears throat> something that happens when there's sin, and, you know, sin is atoned for. Punishment is, is meted out and received by something that's an atonement. So, 
And this self-atonement then would be you punishing yourself in some way in order to feel better about yourself for what you've done. Okay? Punishment, self-punishment, so that you would feel better about yourself. Like that the, the, the guilt of your sin is alleviated by that punishment. Now, we're all tempted toward this in various ways. And the only reason I can talk about these things, okay, I just want to make sure that I'm, <laughs> I'm clear on these things. Because I see them all in my heart. Okay, so if you feel like I'm reading your mail, um, it's just because we have the same kind of heart. That's the only reason. Okay, I don't know your mail. Um, but I know what kind of heart you have, the same kind of heart I have in the temptation. So, I've had, to, I've had to work through all these things in my own heart. So that's, if I have any clarity, that's the reason. All right? So we're tempted toward this sort of self-atonement when we realize we've sinned, and maybe the Lord's exposed this deep-rooted fear of man in your life, and then you immediately and frantically kind of rush to fix it. Like, I've got to fix it. I've got to get it, you know, cleaned up. It, it's kind of like that, the same feeling like when you, when you notice there's like lettuce in between your teeth, you know, and you're at a meal. It's like, quick, let's get this out before anybody else sees it and just carry on and hopefully kind of minimize the damage. It's probably a bad illustration, but you kind of get the point. Um, so in this case, you, you feel like you have to prove yourself to God. Like, th- th- you have to prove that you're really repentant. Um, that, or maybe he, you think he's mad at you or he's got to cool off. Uh, you need to let him, you know, chill out for a bit before you can come to him. I'm in prayer for help. And I think all these things are forms of trying to atone for yourself for your own sin. And it essentially, get this, key in here, it amounts to a denial of Christ's atonement for you. You're saying that's not enough. And I know it sounds alarming when we say it that way, but we have to realize that that's what's happening when we actually respond this way, when, we, when we're trying to sort of merit our way back to God in, in repentance. So sort of quick fi- like quickly fix it, like quickly remedy the situation. And it, but, but this is actually rooted in pride. doesn't feel that way because you feel like a wretch. You feel like you've, you've undone things and you've got to quick make it better. But that's pride. So how? How is that pride? We say, I was perfect before this, but now I see I've got a problem. And now I need to fix the problem so I can get back to being perfect. Now, we would never say it that way, okay? But I think that's, if we're honest, that's probably what's operative. I know know that's what's happening in my heart when I do these kinds of things. And instead, we have to realize, okay, we were never good. Even as I say it like that, you know, you're like, oh, I don't think I'm perfect. Like, but we think we're good, and we think we kind of slipped up here, and now we got a quick fix so we can get back to being good. But we have to realize that our hearts at the fundamental level are never good. The only good we have is in and through Christ and His Spirit operative in us as He's making us into new creatures in Christ. And what God has exposed in our hearts isn't even the half of it. Like what we see is just a little bit of what's down there. And we desperately, desperately, the the only thing we need in that moment is mercy. That's it. That's all we've got. 
We can't clean, there's no cleaning yourself up from your condition. Mercy is the only answer. Straight mercy. Atonement from Him outside of yourself. That's what you have to have. We can't atone for ourselves at all. Only He can provide what we need in that moment. We do want to address the sin. I'm not saying we don't address the sin. Okay, We don't try to make it right. But in this moment, we, we don't want to try to make it right apart from His mercy. And that's the key. Does that make sense? We don't want to bypass mercy to kind of quick self-atone make it right. So that's just a brief sketch of some of the ways that we're tempted to conceal our sin, as the Proverbs say. So don't, when you hear that, when you read that, when you hear these warnings in the Bible, don't think, well, I don't do that. <laughs> think, the warnings are there because my heart's probably going to be tempted to do that. So how? Right? How, how is that going to happen? So we've, this is just, there's more we could probably talk about, but just a quick sketch, thumbnail sketch, of the ways that we are tempted to do this. So if we shouldn't do that. If we shouldn't try to conceal and hide and kind of keep protecting, which is really ironic, because think about that. What's motivating you to conceal your fear of man? The fear of man, right? Most likely. You don't want to bring it out in the open. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a nasty cycle, okay? So we don't want to go that way. Number two, our second biblical help is the Bible tells us, the biblical authors tell us to confess your sinful fear of man. Confess it. Now again, we're, we're, this, is, this is basics, but so good to, to review the basics. The text that we just looked at, that I read to you a, a, a few minutes ago, text like Proverbs 28, says, whoever conceals his transgressions won't prosper, but whoever confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 32, the same thing. I confess my sin to the Lord and forgave the iniquity. 1 John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us for our sin. So, all those texts give the, the negative and the positive. So, what is the, what's the, the, if we kind of boil it down, like what's the essence of confession? Right? Like what is the core of it? Well, confession to just, it's, it's real simple, we don't have to overcomplicate it. It's just owning your sin. Just taking full ownership of your sin. If you think about all those other like little weaselly ways that we try to get out of it, it's not doing those things and saying, I'm the guy. Right? Like David. I'm the man when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. You've got lots of examples of this in Scripture. But if, if we want to just sort of spread this out maybe a little bit more extensive, we could say that the confession happens when we're convinced of the sinfulness of sin. We're convinced of its evil. And we agree with God's assessment of it. So that's, that's, again, just like fleshing this out a bit. We're convinced of the sinfulness of sin, which we don't, we're, I mean, we don't really do that on our own, apart from the Lord's help. And then we agree with God's assessment. That's the same, same saying it the same way. Same, same thing, different way. Um, and as we begin to agree with God's assessment, we're also agreeing with where it came from, where the sin came from. It came from our hearts in no other place. Okay? There may have been circumstances, occasions for sin, temptations to sin, but where that sin came from was right out of your heart. 
And the Bible is super clear about this. People don't cause it. Your circumstances don't cause it. Even though we talk that way, he made me angry. It's like, no. I mean, I understand that's how it feels. I've said those things. But we have to catch it. No, that I was tempted to anger and I reacted in, in anger. I know we're not talking about anger, but that's like, that's the hardest one to kind of get your head around. Like that it actually, it actually anger comes from within me and I'm, I'm to blame for anger because you're like, at one moment, I'm not angry. And then said person walks in, they say thing A, and it elicits wrath, right? From me. It's like, you caused my anger. It looks, I mean, that's how it appears, right? Uh, but the Bible has a different take on it. <clears throat> Mark, you can write down Mark 7, 21 and 23. <clears throat> it's where Jesus says that all of these things, all these sinful responses that we have emanate from our hearts. And your heart is the very, like, it's in the Bible, is the most core part of who you are. So if it's coming from your heart, that means you're responsible for it. You can write down Romans one twenty five as well. There, Paul says that, that we sin because we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So the reason we sin is because we're deceived. We've exchanged true worship for false worship. And that's why we do all these immoral acts. And remember, if we bring it back to the fear of man, when we fear people, we're idolizing them. We're worshiping them above God, according to Romans 1.25. And so that's why, that's why we fear. Because it's on us. That's where it comes from. It comes from our heart. <clears throat> now, why am I hammering this? Well, number one, because the, the, this kind of admission is extremely humbling. If you've been taken through this process, you get it. You know, it's like, it humbles you to the ground. But, I want to encourage you here, because up to this point, this is at least half the battle in overcoming sin. Right here. is not making excuses and owning your sin. Because this is where humility begins to set in. This is where the fear of God begins to set in your heart as you begin to own your sin at the, at the very fun, most fundamental level. Well, why is, why is that? Why is it half the battle already kind of won at this point? Well, because this kind of humble admission, it drives us to the mercy of God as our only hope. Right? We've got no other option. We can't hope in any of our own righteousness because it's not there. <laughs> we don't have anything. We have no hope of getting it. And, and so, and this is where it gets beautiful because, you know, we, we don't just sing the song that we come to cr- the cross empty-handed, but, like, we've actually experienced the, what that feels like. Like, yeah, I really don't have anything in my hands to bring the Lord. And, and God's proven this to us by experience, which is a, is a sweet thing. Difficult, but sweet. And as a result of taking full responsibility for our fear of man, we then end up growing in the most fundamental virtue of all, which is humility. 
We come back to the Lord again and again as these recurring fears arise, and they will recur. We come back to Him again and again, requesting mercy and help in the same area. That's humbling. We never get beyond needing Him. That's humbling. And even when He gives us obedience, when He grants obedience in these areas, as we're striving to obey Him, and, and we, we can talk about victory in this area, we do, we talk about it with fear, right? And trepidation, because all glory goes to God for any of the visible fruit in our lives. Because we recognize how dependent we are and that our dependence on Him is the only thing that's produced the fruit. So you see how this is so vital. This sort of owning our sin, driving us to the mercy of God. And so if you've been convicted in our study on the fear of man, this is a point in our our study just to pull back and say, have you done points one and two? Have you actually owned it? Have you confessed your, your sin accurately to the Lord? In your relationship with him. Because he knows, and he's exposing, and he's wanting to see what you're going to do with it. Are you going to own it in a way that he wants you to own it? Have you admitted that you're the only one to blame here, and that you desperately need his mercy alone if you're going to move forward? So if you haven't done that, that's like steps one and two. You know, they're really two sides of the same coin. That this is, that's the first fundamental step. And the beauty of this is that God promises, He promises to forgive that kind of humble request. He promises to do that. So that means, number three, we need to appropriate God's promises of forgiveness and change. We need to appropriate God's promises of forgiveness and change. And I just kept these same texts here for points one through three, because um, they all are involved in, they all say the same thing. So for the person who confesses and forsakes his sin, he will obtain mercy, Proverbs 28. Psalm 32, David recounts how he received and experienced forgiveness um, when previously his bones had been crushed by the weight of his guilt under the hand of the Lord. First uh, John, again, promises that he'll, he'll be faithful and just for, to cleanse us of all sin. So these are, these are robust promises that God will fully and finally, freely cleanse you. So, in other words, for those people who stake everything on Christ, for those who come to Christ full of sin and treason against him, but coming in humble faith, God's promise is breathtaking. He promises to not just pardon, but abundantly pardon. Every time. And the Lord wants us to trust in those promises. That's why I'm saying appropriate. That's what I mean by the word appropriate. It's another word. like you bring them in close. That's what appropriate means. Like, they're, they're, for me, like, they're not just there on the page, but I've, I'm grabbing them, and they're, I'm believing these things. We'll talk, about, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the Bible gives us so many examples of the abundant mercy of the Lord. But even the biblical authors sometimes struggle for metaphors here. They're just kind of grasping at things, you know, um, the Father loves His children, you know, so the Lord loves those who fear Him. It's just like, they're just kind of, 
the biblical authors are kind of grasping at, at metaphors. And I think one of the most striking parables is the heart of the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You guys are all probably familiar with that. If you're not, just write down Luke 15. It would be worth a, a review. The heart of the father of the prodigal son. This father, who had been shamed and mistreated by his arrogant son, this, this dad, whose resources had been squandered in a life of sin that would not only bring reproach on the kid, but would bring reproach on the entire family, this dad only cares about the well-being of his sinful son. It's an incredible story. It elicits the anger of the older son, in fact. That's how scandalous it is. The moment that this father sees his son returning, he runs out to meet him. He embraces him. He clothes him with the best garments. And he celebrates his homecoming. And I think we we sort of all see ourselves in that prodigal son scenario and we're like, ah, that's so sweet. Like, that's crazy. Like, that is a crazy scenario in the ancient Near East. And it, it, it shows this father's just total, he's totally consumed with the well-being of his child. And is overjoyed at his repentance. And that's really the, the theme of that whole, that whole those set of stories in Luke 15. The shepherd who goes out to find that sheep that's lost. The woman who's trying to seek and find her lost coin. And then this third parable of the, prodigal, the, the son or the, the father's heart toward his son, actually toward both of his sons, um, but in this moment, toward the prodigal. And, it, and this is a metaphor of God's disposition toward the repentant sinner. He is overjoyed every single time you repent. He abundantly pardons His love for you doesn't change, it doesn't wax, it doesn't wane, it doesn't increase, it doesn't diminish. His love is constant, it's fixed, and it's eternal. And we say, how can this be? How does this this work? Even when we've idolized others above the Lord, like we're, we're traitors. We've brought so much reproach on the Lord, and even more so as a Christian when we sin against Him, because we know better. When we've claimed to worship Him, but in secret have been living for the praises of others or maybe for other things. How can this be? Well, it's because His forgiveness of you isn't based on you and your worthiness to be forgiven. He can forgive freely and justly because of what Christ has done for His people. All the wrath that you deserve from God for your idolatry, and you deserve it, I deserve it, all the wrath that you deserve has been poured out on Jesus. The Bible's word for this is propitiation. Propitiation, it means one who has absorbed wrath. Romans 3.25 is one reference for that word, but it's, it's, it's in multiple places. Jesus absorbs the wrath of the Father for our sin. We could say it like this. All of your fear of man has been punished in Christ. 
And all that remains for you, if you trust Him, is total pardon. And not just pardon, but total favor in the eyes of the Father. You are clothed with the very robes of Christ's righteousness as a traitor. And that's what the Bible means when he says his forgiveness is abundant. Like it's, it's more than we can fathom, right? And yet I think that we sometimes in pride, we think that it's too presumptuous to depend that freely on his mercy. And we think it's presumptuous, especially when we've come under intense conviction for our sin. Like when we see our sin, and, we, and the Lord gives us a little bitty glimpse of like how bad it is, and how pervasive it is, and how it's affecting multiple areas of our lives, it feels like presumption to say, I'm just going to nakedly fall on the mercy of God. But the Lord is the one making the promise. So don't refuse Him. And the Lord always makes good on His promises. So, what's our response? We need to appropriate these promises as we come to Him confessing our sin. Receive the gift. Let your heart be refreshed by His promises of full pardon, full cleansing, full restoration of the relationship as you come admitting your sin. We may not always and won't always feel forgiven. That's not what I'm saying. But we have to remember that our feelings don't change the realities described in God's Word, do they? No. So what do we do? We believe. We choose to believe the promises in these moments, even if they seem too good to be true. I don't think this is in your outline. What time is it? 8.10. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55. So, I think I'm going to put this with this attitude of sort of like thinking about feeling presumptuous before the Lord and His mercy and sort of being shocked at the extent of it, um, this is kind of getting, this Isaiah 5 kind of gets at this. There's this, in verse 6, there's this call. I mean, Isaiah's, the themes of Isaiah are sweet. But in verse 6 in chapter 55, there's sort of this call to come back to God. So Israel's been just completely unfaithful and deserving of all kinds of wrath for being a disobedient son. And there's this sort of just wide open call for the nation to come back. And listen to what it says in verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Now catch this. (laughs) You're thinking like, 
whoa, you know, if you're in the context, maybe you're a faithful Israelite, you're like, you're just going to like freely pardon these rebels, you know? And he says, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So what's he saying there? I think he's saying, don't evaluate me according to your standards. I'm not you. I'm God. And this is how I do things. So my point, bring that up, is to give you a little text there to say don't refuse the Lord and his, his call to embrace mercy. And not only has he promised forgiveness, which he has, but he's also promised to change us. To change us too. He's going to complete the work that he started in us, Philippians 1.6. He's going to see to it that we are trained and disciplined to share in His holiness, just like any good dad would train his kid, Hebrews 12. He's going to work every single circumstance in our life together for good, which is the conformity of our lives to Jesus' life, to His image, Romans 8, 28 and 29. And these passages are so important for us to lock in, for us to know well. They've got to be earmarked, right? Underlined in your Bible. We've got to rehearse these passages back to God in the moments of struggle, in the moments of persistent sin, especially as we come to Him in our, our more besetting sin areas, like the fear of man, which is going to happen in a recurring way. And the, the really wild thing that we saw last week is that as we experience God's forgiveness and salvation... As we experience this again, this forgiveness again and again in Christ, as we come to Him as His children, this experience of His mercy creates more of that reverential fear in our hearts, doesn't it? So we're thinking, if we bring the two, fear of man, fear of God together, as we experience the mercy of God, we stand in awe of God. And it, it yokes us even closer to Him. Oh man, so many passages. Um, Jeremiah 31, I'll just summarize it for you. It's, it's, that, it's that beautiful new covenant passage where he's, the, the Lord is coming to the people of Israel and saying, like, I'm going to make a covenant with you and it's going to be different than the one I made at Sinai. In this covenant, I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to write it on your heart. Uh, and he says a bunch of things. I'm going to be your people. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be in covenant relationship with you. You're all going to know me from the least to the greatest. And it's just like, he's just pouring it out. And he says, because, you're going to do these things because, because I'm going to forgive you of your sin. He's going to put forgiveness, in other words, leads to all these other, these other benefits. So this fear, like he says in, in Jeremiah 31, my point, I think I, missed, I think I left this part out. He says, I'm going to put the fear of me in your hearts because I'm going to forgive you of, my, of your sin. So the, the forgiveness of sins in the New Covenant is the very basis by which he puts his fear in your heart. Like, there was a time when you didn't fear God. You didn't take him very seriously. You kind of maybe came to church, you did these things, like, whatever, but you didn't fear him. There wasn't this, 
this realization that God is and he speaks through his scriptures and you're going to be held accountable to him and you need to, you need to forsake your way and trust him. That's the fear of God. That's you taking him seriously. And in his providence, in his way, he did that in you. That's the, that's the blessing of the new covenant in the forgiveness of sins. So we, we come to him. It's his, it's his patience. It's, it's the patience of God as I experience his patience that endears me to him. In fear, like in that positive, fatherly fear. It's his patience and mercy that makes me stand in awe of him. It humbles me before him. It makes me all the more grieved when I sin against him. And it motivates me to be faithful to him in return for what he's done for me. Think about this. Has anybody ever just... You betrayed somebody deeply. And you were convicted by it, like kind of came to him, there was forgiveness, reconciliation happened, and they legitimately forgave you and they didn't hold that over you. And you were completely in the wrong. What does that do to you? That endears you to that person. It makes you respect that person and want to be loyal to them as a result. And that simple little human example can't even begin to compare to what the Lord's done for us. And for people that fear the Lord, they understand that because they've experienced that. In varying degrees, we, our understanding our understanding is always growing, but we, we do we see those things. So, as basic as these first three points are, they're, and they're very vital, um, because it's actually how we begin to grow in the fear of the Lord. But there is more, okay? There's more helps that the Bible gives us, and we'll try to cover these quickly. We covered this last week, so I'll be brief here. Number four... We need to ask for His help in uniting your heart. Ask for the Lord's help in uniting your heart to fear Him. I'm just taking that language straight out of Psalm 86. Um, the psalmist in this, in this passage asks the Lord, he says, he says, unite my heart to fear Your name. So he's saying, bring my heart together. Bring it together to fear You only. I know I'm tempted, I can feel it, I t- to fear these other people, to fear this circumstance above you, but I want to fear you, so please unite my fickle heart to fear you alone. It's a great prayer. Great prayer. That's the idea. And this, this kind of prayer is important in this scenario because it, it humbles me. Again, you see the, the, the theme of humility running all the way through this, but prayer is a clear reminder that all change and empowerment come directly from God. Like, I don't generate it in and of myself. And it reminds me that God's told me to come to Him, to ask, to knock, so that I would receive, Luke 11, I would receive these things from the Lord. And I think we're going to be surprised when we get to the kingdom to see how many of these pathetic little prayers that we prayed were actually answered by God. I mean, like, think about that. How many of our desires did he alter in response to us asking for help? How much unnoticed help did he actually supply because we asked him for it? All just simply because we said, help, you know? I'm looking to you to come through because I can't. I don't know how. I'm at my wit's end. Don't know the path forward, you know? Like, help me. This is just prayer. It's the lifeline to our, our Heavenly Father. So, 
It doesn't only tell us to pray, though, this help. Okay, so that's number four. That's good. That needs to be part of our lives, but we don't want to just think, oh, I'm just going to pray and that's it. It also, the Bible tells us to actively do things like fight lies, renew our minds. That'd be Ephesians 4. It tells us to kill sin, Romans 8. It tells us to forsake our sin, Proverbs 28. So, in other words, God empowers us as we put in the effort. So I'm going to call our fifth directive, uh, we need to, or our fifth help here, is create a battle plan for mind renewal and change. Create a battle plan for mind renewal and change. Anybody say battle plan? Like, whoa, Clay, getting a little, uh, getting a little intense. Well, the Bible uses war language for sanctification, so that's why I'm calling it that. Remember, the fear of man is a snare. This is not good. This is not something good for you. Okay, it detracts from God's glory and our usefulness. And it's impossible to fear a man and be a servant of Christ, Paul says in Galatians 1. So, we've got to deal with it. We have to fight it. We want to kill it. We should hate it. And the Lord's going to help us, but we have to go to the battle. Okay? We've got to go. And it would be foolish to go into battle without a plan. Right? Can we all agree on that? You can make the plan by yourself, but it's awesome when you can do this with a comrade in the faith. Right? or a discipler, or a mentor who can kind of come alongside you, especially if you're new in the faith or young in the faith, and you're battling a besetting sin like the fear of man, and you're seeing it for the first time, and you're kind of overwhelmed, you, you need somebody else to kind of help you work through these things. But, so, I give you all this in detail, because I didn't want you to have to write things down. Um, it's kind of a couple steps. There's nothing magical about these. Uh, we could probably say it differently. But... Basically, this would kind of help you craft an individual sort of plan for how you might approach this issue of the fear of man. Okay, so you're approaching it confident in God's mercy, confident in His enablement, confident in your as you're in, in standing as a child of God. But we're going to have a plan to to battle this thing. So first thing I would say is isolate your circumstances. So you fear man, and there's a, there's in your, all in your individual lives, there's a particular set of circumstances that are flowing around that are unique to you, and that's when it typically manifests itself the worst. And you probably already know that. And if you have, a, if you have trouble with that, go back to message number one and re-listen to it, or read back through some of the notes, and try to find, okay, what are those circumstances that I'm most tempted to fear man? And what happens when I'm in those circumstances? Like, how does the fear of man come out? Um, what's the bad fruit of the fear of man? So if you remember back to my example, it was with those TES pastors, and I was waking up in the middle of the night, unable to go back to sleep because I was anxious. Because I feared man, right? I was idolizing those men. I esteemed them highly, and it went overboard. So that's the bad fruit. You know, I'm, and I'm snappy with my wife, and I'm short with my kids, and all these other things. That's bad fruit. And it's, it's those, but those were the circumstances. There was this summit that was happening, and I was trying to plan this thing. And, but then what's interesting about this is that, guess what? That's not the only time I'm around those men. So I know that there's certain times in my calendar that I'm going to be around these men, and I can feel the temptations coming up again. So I'm, the Lord's equipping me to know, okay, these are certain circumstances where I really struggle with this, and I'm really going to have to be on guard. Does that make sense? All right, isolate your circumstances, 
And then as it's happening, or as it's happened, and there's bad fruit or whatever, reflect on your heart. So what I mean by that is the inner person. So take it a little deeper than just, yeah, I was just nervous. Okay, well, what was going on inside you in those moments? What do you want in this situation? What are you telling yourself in this situation? So what I mean by that is like, there's usually like a reel going on in your head. It's just replaying over and over and over and over and over again. And that's what you're telling yourself. And it's important to get that out so you can see what that is. What's motivating you as far as you can tell? And I understand these questions are hard to answer. It's going to be murky because you can't really even see the depths of your own heart very well. So I get that. Think another question is a good one is what are you trying to achieve in this scenario where you're tempted to fear man? Like, what's, what's your end goal? What are you trying to get? These are all questions, not, nothing magic about them, but just questions to get you reflecting on what's happening on the inside. Because your responses are happening as a, according to your inner person. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if I'm at the gag point yet. I know this has been a lot of info. Um, I don't know if you're gagging. You okay? We're almost done. You can see on your outline. Um, then after you've, after you've reflected on your heart and you've kind of begun to, begun to get some clarity here about just what's going on. I'm not even saying like you're... The, the next point is evaluate those thoughts and motives with Scripture. So take what you see kind of on the page or whatever in your conversation and then begin to... That's why it's so good to write these things down because you can begin to evaluate what you, what's going on on the inside with what the Bible says. So, questions like this. What would the scriptures say to your thoughts? Can you identify, at this point, any lies that you've been running to? What truths are you ignoring that you need to believe? Where are those truths found in the Bible? What's your daily plan to get real familiar with those truths, right? So, that's really where you need help, most likely, in all of this. Maybe the last point as well, but this point, too, is where I think another person could be really helpful that's out ahead of you, and they can, they can help take you to the pastors that have, that have been transformative for them. Um, so anyway, so that's evaluation. And then the last idea here, as you can see on your outline, plan for obedience. Make a plan for, for how you're going to obey in that moment. So what would it look like to fear God, i.e. obey, more than man, to fear God more than man in this situation? Okay. What should you think, say, or do in this situation that would bring maximal glory to God? Just sort of like plot that out. Does God's word speak directly to that situation? Are there any other biblical principles that come to bear in this situation? Any direct commands that's going to give you some kind of like concrete direction of like, hey, when I'm in this circumstance, I need to do this. That's what, the, that's what God has said. There's not always commands for every situation, but lots of times there are commands for, for your direct situation. What could you do that would most crucify the fear of man in your heart? That's a great, that's a great uh, question. Um, that one little practical thing that I've done at points is like any time I sense, I shouldn't say any time, because I'm sure there's been times I've not done this, but like if, if I'm in a close relationship with somebody that I esteem highly, and there's, there's this, something comes up, and I kind of want to cover it a little bit, to seem better in that person, I just kind of like, when I feel that, I just, like, no, here's the truth. You know, not, not like, and again, we got to, within reason, talk about that. But if, if it's like, oh, I know that 
I've been struggling to get up at a certain time, and my mentor is here, and uh, I know he gets up at 3 o'clock every morning, or whatever, I'm saying that, you know. And I feel like a royal failure, because I am, because I've, I've been undisciplined as a younger man, and I want him to think highly of me, because he's another pastor on staff. I'm going to be tempted to not tell him about that. And it wouldn't be wrong for me not to tell him about that. Like, there's nothing in the Bible that says I have to tell him absolutely everything that's going on in my heart. I don't. But what I would know would happen if I told him that is I would be humbled. Right? And I know that I'm tempted to fear him in that moment. And so I want to be humbled. So I'm going to tell him, hey, pray for me. Because I've overslept for the last three days in a row. You know, it's like, but what does that do? That deals a death blow, at least in that moment, to that desire to be esteemed by that guy. Um, and, to, and to get the, the reality. So that's what I mean. Like, what would crucify, what could you do to crucify that in your heart? If it's really a snare, if you really believe that, you're going to get after it, right? We're not going to waste time. So what could you do that would cultivate the fear of God in that circumstance? What new and beautiful fruit is available to you if you obey? Those are just questions to think about. Like, man, if I can get this area under control, think of the usefulness. Think of the fruit. Think of what is out there for me. I mean, that's, that's hugely motivating for me to try to get after it in a particular area. So, those are just some questions. I need to wrap this up. Um, but our, our last point here, our last biblical help is significant, but I'll, I'll let you guys kind of work through that. It was just The last point is learn to live in Christ's presence and yield your will to Him in moments of temptation. So learn, I kind of squeezed two points into one. Um, learn to live in Christ's presence, but they go together. Okay, Learn to live in Christ's presence and yield your will to Him in moments of temptation. Psalm 16.8 says, David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Psalm 16.8, I have set the Lord always before me. What is he saying? He's not saying that he put the Lord somewhere that he wasn't before. Like your Christmas decoration. like Put it on the hearth. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that he lives his life recognizing that the Lord is with him always, that he lives in his presence before his face always. And David's greatest poem on this theme is Psalm 139, where David describes the Lord as intimately present, aware of his movements, thoughts, and intentions. And this awareness of the presence of the Lord is a strong motivation for obedience. Think about just when you've been tampering with sin and you thought you were alone, but then somebody walks in, right? You know, like, oh, like you're scrambling around, like you're covering your tail. Like, that's powerful motivation, right? The presence of another person, and that's just another person who's a sinner like you. Out of fear of man, your behavior immediately changes. But what if we realized more constantly that the Lord is right here and He sees everything? More than you see about yourself. And outside of Christ, like apart from Him, that is terrifying. A sovereign and holy God knows everything about me and will judge me for every evil intention of my heart. Which Genesis 6 says is continual. However, because I'm in Christ... The Lord's presence is His favorable presence. It's His covenant presence. It's He loves me presence. And he, He's drawing near to me as His child to help me. 
to help me. And seeing that he is intimately involved in every detail of my life motivates me to yield my will to him even in moments where he appears to be absent or he doesn't even appear to be spiritual. Does that make sense? Like, he is here now with us. And so in these moments where you're most tempted to fear man, remember the Lord is with you, Christian. He's present, he's watching, and he's offering help. So in that moment, what he desires us to do, like he modeled for us in the garden, is to resign your will to his. To obey him by faith, even when it's hard, even when you're terrified, even when you've got to do that thing and and you don't want the consequences, but you're going to do it because you fear him. So work the plan you've made in, in in the fear of the Lord. And we'll end here. When you sin, okay, and you will, when you fear man, you falter, you fear man again, repeat the process. It's the beauty of this thing. Run to the Father who loves you, owning your sin and seeking his mercy. Gain assurance of his love and then go back over the battle plan, right? Making any tweaks or adjustments as you gain more insight into your heart, because you will. You'll gain more insight as you're fighting. You gain a lot of insight, actually. And go back to your friends and to your disciples and fight right alongside them. And pretty soon, you're going to see the Spirit start producing some incredible fruit in your life and discernment. And you are going to be useful in the body for that other young person that's never, never gone through this yet. Or maybe they're just starting. The Lord's just exposing them. And you can say, brother, sister, come alongside me. I know what this process of, of repentance and growth looks like. You're not going to be perfect, but you'll be able to take them there because the Lord's worked it in your heart. So stay in the fight. Don't give up and keep cultivating the fear of man. If you have any questions, <laughs> don't cultivate the fear of man. Cultivate the fear of God. Reject fear of man. Sorry. If you have any questions, feel free. Um, love, to, love to chat with you guys about this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, how clear your word is. Give us the path out um, of sin. We pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, unite our heart to fear your name and make us as a ministry just known for our humility, our love for one another, um, and our ability to help other people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.